Hello! Buongiorno! And welcome to Tales from the Chesterfield, episode number 14. Second episode of 2024. Which is craziness. Love it. We are just getting back from Dallas, Texas. Yeah, and I hope everybody joined us last week as we did some really stupid shit for... Good times. <laughs> we did. We did. Waco was cool. Yes. Arkansas um, was cool. Yeah. We so. hope everybody enjoyed the um, wax museum mm. situation. Yes. Maybe we'll add that to our highlights. Yeah. We Good can idea. definitely do that. Good call. So thanks for coming back. Um, if you haven't already, please like and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's really, really helpful on getting our name out there. If you comment, rate us five stars, even four stars, we'll take it. But we need, we need to. <laughs> no. <laughs> if, you're coming, if you're coming back, you obviously like us. So if you haven't already, please do that. Also follow us over on our socials at TFTC underscore pod. And Patreon as well, if you really like us. Come on down. <laughs> you get a lot of free shit, so. And uh, extra episodes. Yeah, you can see that in our highlights of our Instagram. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with that, let us begin today's episode. I don't like this episode. I'm just going to preface that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's a biggie. Mm-hmm. Eight victims and six survivors were affected by one of Canada's most prolific serial killers. Hunting the grounds of nursing homes in Ontario, Canada from 2007 to 2016, she took advantage of an atmosphere of trust. Families placed their loved ones experiencing complex needs and within their last stages of life. Dignity and respect should be everyone's virtue. No one suspected her of harming anyone until she herself confessed everything. Today's tale from the Chesterfield is about former registered nurse Elizabeth Wetlawfer, who abused, manipulated, and killed the elderly in the name of God in an episode we call Blood Sugar. June 10, 1967, Elizabeth Parker grew up in a strictly religious home. Elizabeth struggled throughout her life, bullied and isolated at school, Huron Park Secondary School, in Woodstock, Ontario. She never felt like she fit in. Growing up in a Baptist household, she struggled to be accepted by her parents as she came to terms with the fact that she was a lesbian in high school. Nursing wasn't Elizabeth's first career choice either. Both her and her father joined London Baptist Bible College, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in religious education counseling. At this time, Elizabeth connected with her first girlfriend. They attended a gay-friendly church together and was subsequently kicked out of school. In the Baptist religion, many go through the mandatory conversion where you are saved and born again. As non-heteronormative relationships and sexuality go against the conservative religious beliefs, Elizabeth's parents enrolled her into conversion therapy. And you know, of course you don't, but I'm going to ask anyway. (laughs) Do you know the movie, but I'm a cheerleader? I don't. I've heard of it. I feel like I must have seen it as a teenager, and it's just not... Sticking. It's just not sticking. Yeah. But I feel like I can see the DVD in my head, and I also remember some jokes from 
a parody of a movie like this. Oh, okay. It's Natasha Leone and Cara Delvine. Delvine. Oh, Delvine. Cara Delvine. And RuPaul plays a straight man. What? <laughs> yes. No, no. Yeah, so Natasha, her parents think she's gay. She's like, I'm not gay. So they, she just gets sent to a conversion therapy camp. And so RuPaul is the converted straight, now straight camp counselor. That's amazing. Yeah, it's hilarious. And then he, there's like um, groundsmen who like have like ripped bodies and all the kids who are supposed to be in conversion therapy always like stare at them and RuPaul's like chastising them, but like looking at the men. And- <laughs> I love that actually. It's so good. It's so funny, and there's a scene where she, like, has the revelation of, like, she can't be gay, she's a cheerleader. Mm. She's like, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. But, I mean, these programs themselves have been discredited as, like, dangerous pseudoscience, and Canada has actually just recently fully banned conversion therapy. Thank God. Yes, so this is definitely a celebration. So many anti-LGBT laws are being put into place in America, and while this is a big win for Canada, really more work needs to be done. This practice won't go away, but it can be disguised. So we need to really remain vigilant to this and support the community in any way that we can. Um, there's a hashtag, NCT for all, which is um, an Eagle campaign. And any UK listeners, conversion therapy is still legal there. And in America, some jurisdictions actually still allow it. I'm sadly not surprised, but definitely still heartbroken. Yeah. After her parents seemingly couldn't pray the gay away, she was chastised from her family, and even her older brother stopped talking to Elizabeth. While she did finish her schooling, within the same year, Elizabeth enrolled in nursing at Conestoga College. Like many college programs, she had to complete a student placement and was sent to Geraldton District Association for Community Living. It's really no secret that many helping professions are severely underfunded and understaffed. Hiring those who need the work, motivated to do the job, but sometimes just are not the right fit. Elizabeth was hired to the community living facility in Thunder Bay, Ontario, where she often worked the overnight shift and pulled afternoon double shifts as well. While this worked for a short time, the isolation of being up north got to Elizabeth. Thunder Bay sits along the shores of Lake Superior, offering peaceful city living. 16 hours away from Toronto. If you're not a fan of cold, long (laughs) winters, you will not find solitude in Thunder Bay. Often reaching temperatures of negative 15 degrees Celsius, the city faces extreme levels of racism, poverty, and unemployment. Soon she was experiencing depression. You know, one of the most common symptoms experienced by those who undergo conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. Mixed with environmental isolation, it was just a mixture that was not going to work for her. In September of 1995, it finally became too much for her to handle on her own. She was found stumbling around the halls at work where she collapsed amongst her co-workers. Unbeknown to them at the time, at what she was about to soon do, they treated Elizabeth and ultimately saved her life. She had taken 30 milligrams of Ativan, stating she wanted to end her life. Elizabeth was then fired. Being a part of the Ontario Nurses Association, her termination was reported and put into the registering body's hands. They attempted to support Elizabeth with providing her with counseling and an alcohol addiction treatment center, and instead of removing her registration as a nurse, they placed her on a medical incapacitation leave. 
With help of ONA, she fought to have her termination wiped from her records, and the hospital agreed to state that she resigned due to medical reasons. They even let her know that future employees could phone them to be provided with an explanation of what happened. In 2007, all records of this incident were removed from Elizabeth's file. Oh, so that one's really tough because obviously we want to support anyone who's struggling with any kind of crisis in their life, regardless of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. But what we later find out to what we later find out that she does makes you want to argue against that. Yeah, I think there are people who do have a triggering event or a crisis in their life where they make a poor decision Mm -hmm. that affects other people in a negative way, not just themselves. Um, But I do also believe that if that person gets the right support, if they have a good connection to their family or friends or chosen family or just their community in general, that they can make change in their lives. And so I do understand the idea of wanting to provide that second chance Mm -hmm. to Elizabeth. Absolutely. I also, while this was obviously going to be very traumatizing to the nurses who found her, Mm -hmm. she ultimately really only hurt herself. She didn't put her patients at risk at this time. Yes. Yes, it's going to be very traumatizing for the nurses who found her, for her to do this at work, obviously something very big is going on for her. Um, but she hasn't put, that, to our knowledge, she hasn't put her patients in danger at this time. Yeah, and Yet. oftentimes people who are having suicidal ideation and do something in a public space, like the workplace or mm-hmm. um, a public space in general, they know that somebody will find them at some point. Um, and so there's that feeling of comfort of like, okay, if I do go through with it, somebody will find me, but if I do it and don't want to die after having done the act, then there's people around who can help me. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Absolutely. Moving back to Woodstock in February, 1996, Elizabeth was committed to her sobriety. She began seeing a counselor for substance abuse and was attending group support meetings. By June, she was successful in obtaining a job as a support worker at at Christian Horizons, a group home for people with disabilities. Without knowledge of her past of stealing medication for herself, her boss asked her to use her nursing skills in teaching others on how to dispense medication and proper ways to move those who could not move themselves. They trusted Elizabeth to do the medication counts and fill prescriptions in communication with the pharmacy. Future court documents released her resume and has become a public document. She used the following to describe her duties and responsibilities. Provided and assisted with all aspects of care for developmentally challenged residents. Provided one-on-one respite care for a child with high medical needs and severe developmental challenges. Taught and supervised staff in medication administration. In-home health and safety coordinator. Developed a course in safe lift and taught in all West District Christian Horizon homes. Her email was shortandsilly at hotmail.com. Returning to Woodstock also meant returning to her family. She began going to church again where she met a man. Trying to suppress and deny her sexuality, she married truck driver Donnie Wetlaufer. Wetlaufer? I don't even know her. I barely even know her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Donnie. Oh, We're sorry. (laughs) This is such a horrible story. Yes, it is. We have to comfort ourselves somehow. (laughs) 
Things settled out. She maintained her marriage, likely to keep her image positive for her family and church. She continued excelling in her job and remained sober. But this did not last. I mean, are you surprised? Not at all. She's literally living a life that was not meant for her. Just like conversion therapy, it doesn't work and it's extremely harmful to those who go through it. Someone who's living a life that's a lie every single day is bound to have some mental health struggles. It just so happened that Elizabeth also had the means to access prescription medication on top of that. Being Baptist as well, there is a deep shame that comes with alcohol use. It's like telling a child not to press that big red button. Mm -hmm. Her quote-unquote problems of her sexuality and her sobriety did not go away. They were brushed under the surface for close to a decade, until Elizabeth could no longer live this lie. She began searching online for a romantic connection with a woman. Still married to Donnie, she began an emotional relationship with a woman in New Brunswick. Also during this time, she was going through disciplinary measures at work for numerous medication errors. Taking a leave from work, she spent two weeks in Woodstock Psychiatric Facility. Here, she was diagnosed with depression and borderline personality disorder. As her personal and professional life were beginning to spiral, Donnie found out about the woman on the other end of the computer and began divorce proceedings. Christian Horizons also found out about Elizabeth's affair with a woman, and since homosexuality went against their core values, Elizabeth decided to resign from her support worker position. Decided to design to resign? I mean, I don't think that there there's was, no way. No, there was no decision. There was no decision that she made. Mm -mm. So I actually thought that this was illegal to do, but I'm not going to say where, when, how, or anything like that. But I met somebody who had ha who got a job with a Christian school district, and and because this person shared a meme that was LGBT plus positive, so showing that they support them, that person was then fired from their job. And this person tried to go and say, I can say whatever I want, freedom of speech, da da da, and they lost and they didn't get that job. This is America, of course. I'm not... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, no, no, right. not in Canada. Okay. But this is in America and I've been witness to it's sad that that makes a difference it does because yeah. we literally pretty much practically live in america mm -hmm. well one of us does well, one of us does live <laughs> in america yes but but you think that uh, in canada that would never fly but in america yeah and really i'm not going to say what state it was in or anything like the state has something to do with it um but it's just very it's just very sad that mm -hmm. there's rights that they can you know didn't the Pope come out and say, like, I support? Yeah, that happened. That happened very recently. Actually, my mom just told me about that. That the the and he and the Pope made it so that they the Catholic Church can now marry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, and I mean, of course, it just it's I I I just get so upset that we're still having this freaking conversation that this is still common for today when we're talking about the early like the or the late 90s and now we're in 2024 and this is still a conversation and we're not surprised we're sad we're not surprised and it's just it's stupid but i don't think she made any decision and i'm not going to stick up for what elizabeth does later but it just you can see it speaks to why mm -hmm. she did what she did and why her mental health went down so quickly yeah so drastically yeah 
Absolutely. Alrighty. Elizabeth's girlfriend ended up moving to Woodstock to be with her in 2007. Suffering from Parkinson's disease, she was unable to work and Elizabeth had to be the sole provider. With her previous nursing concerns wiped from her record, Elizabeth began the next chapter of her life at Caressant Care. Paying approximately $60,000 per year, this was the stability she so desperately needed. She was fired from this job in 2014 after being reprimanded for a slew of medication errors. Again, the ONA helped Elizabeth settle the termination and ensure her disciplinary issues were swept under the rug. At this time, no one knew that Elizabeth had already murdered seven people. We're going to do something a little bit different with this case. We're actually going to start at the end. During the summer of 2016, Elizabeth was working as a temporary staff for St. Elizabeth's Healthcare, picking up shifts at multiple locations as needed. It was here that they proposed Elizabeth get a permanent placement at a school program in Ingersoll that needed staff support in the treatment of children with diabetes. As we'll go on to discuss, all of Elizabeth's victims were elderly up until this point and her weapon of choice was insulin. And Elizabeth, knowing she was not doing right by these people, was scared that if provided the opportunity and felt the urge to kill, that she did not want to kill children. She had spent some time as a temp worker and for these reasons knew that she had to turn down the position. It was then that Elizabeth fully left the profession of nursing. Without access to patient medication, she had hit her rock bottom when she began asking neighbors for drugs or pills. Probably anything to take off the edge of the withdrawal symptoms she was experiencing. It was this behavior that led her to finally accepting support for her mental health and ongoing hydromorph dependency. On September 16, 2016, Elizabeth took the train to Toronto and checked herself into the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, and while she entered voluntarily, she ended up getting formed. So what would you do if I told you that I murdered people at my job? <laughs> wow. What would you say to me? Would you turn me in? Would you tell me to turn myself in? What, what would you say? I would highly encourage you to turn yourself in. And I would give you, like, a time period mm. of when you needed to do it by. Okay. Because I love you so much. Thanks, and I know that you <laughs> are not capable of doing this, but I am a man. Like, we are mandated reporters, so, like... Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about that. So I would uh, definitely give you a chance to come clean to do it myself yeah mm -hmm. and i would encourage you to stop doing doing the killing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you told me the same thing it would just be you who'd be in danger if i told you the same thing it would just be you who'd be in danger you're my only yeah. you're my only co-worker <laughs> i kill co-workers <laughs> i kill co-workers <laughs> that's you're telling my dead body <laughs> so yeah, you know. I noticed. We it's funny, we had this conversation sort of what were we were listening to something on our road trip and I was like, Would mm -hmm. you turn Mark in? Have we already had this conversation on the pod? No, I think it was based on this because yeah. we did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Web. We did a read through, yeah. So we were doing the drive through. I don't remember what case we were listening to, but I turned to Kayla and I was like, Would you turn Mark in if he told you he was he was doing this? And she was like, Yeah. Like, right away, there was no, 
She's like, he's murdering kids. Of course we'll turn him in right away. And then, and I was like, oh, wouldn't you turn? And she's like, wouldn't you turn Blake in? I'm like, I mean, yeah, and I feel pressured like I would. <laughs> I stand by my decision. And I stand by your decision, too. It was just a moment of pause of like, oh. I yeah, no, your I silence was deafening in yeah. the moment. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I, for sure, I get it. So during Elizabeth's first few days at Cam 8, she actually texted Glenn Hart, who was a lifelong friend, to tell him what she had done, stating, it wasn't accidental and it wasn't just one. He urged her to seek help and confess her crimes. He contacted police and asked her to tell the truth. So essentially, her friend did exactly what you would do to me, for me, I guess. Over the course of 20 days, she was determined to tell her story and have people believe her. Over the years, she had confessed her crimes to 14 people. 14 people. That's, wow. Notably, her pastor, Mm -hmm. an ex-girlfriend, multiple friends and co-workers, and a lawyer. All of which did not think much of it based on her calm and happy demeanor, just telling her not to do it again. (laughs) The lawyer even told her to stay silent and seek mental health supports. Mm. Finally, psychologist Dr. Alan Kahn was the first person to hear this story and took Elizabeth seriously. He was able to get Elizabeth to write a four-page confession on her murders in the guise of cognitive therapy. It's this handwritten note, which you can find and read online, we'll put it on our socials, that led police into one of the most unique arrests in Canadian history. Police began an investigation, compiling lists of suspicious deaths involving insulin. However, it was Elizabeth herself who did just as Glenn asked and told the truth. Sitting down with Detective Constable Nathan Hergott, she went through her written document, providing more details and personal insight into her decisions and behavior. You can watch this interview on CBC News' YouTube. It's two and a half hours long, so if you don't want to sit through it, we're about to detail it right now. Right off the bat, you can tell the detective is trying to build rapport with Elizabeth, giving her opportunities to laugh and make small connections. He goes through why they're together and that she's not under arrest. We need to remember that there was and is no suspicion around the deaths of these elderly people, let alone co-workers or families suspecting Elizabeth herself. At this point, everyone involved all believed that the deaths were due to disease, complication, and age. She appears calm and collected in the video, which is not unusual for serial killer confessions. We actually see this a lot, and I would assume is tied to that feeling of relief. As we go on to discuss Elizabeth's confession, she does express remorse, and I have to say it does feel like true remorse based on the fact that it's her coming forward, that she stopped herself from taking a job that may lead to more killing, and her tone when she expresses that shame and guilt. And in this, almost a sweet and childlike demeanor as she begins to outline her first victim. She begins by saying, what I'm about to say, I'm giving on my own free will. There is one time Elizabeth does appear uncomfortable. The detective asks why she left St. Elizabeth. And it's at this point, she goes on to provide her reasoning for the murders. We're gonna play a clip. I think it's important to hear it from her words and to also get a sense for those who haven't seen the video on Elizabeth's tone and the way she confesses her crime. That, that 
So you can definitely see, I know it's on a video, we can put the link in the description for this mm -hmm. one, but you can definitely see her body language completely changes. She like takes her glasses off and rubs her eyes. She see she moves her seat. So you can see she's visibly uncomfortable. And I will say that the way that she says, like, oh my gosh, what if I, yes. you know, it's very telling on how she feels about what she's done in this yeah, and we'll go on to explain a little bit more about um, her reasoning behind the killing. And it really involves an um, impulsivity. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what she's really showing there. Like, what if? Mm -hmm. What oh, if yeah. I got that, that anger, that surge, and I yeah. didn't kill a child? Yeah. I didn't want to do that. And the only way to stop myself is to come forward. Right. It's very interesting. It's almost the opposite of, you know, they have the worthy victim and the unworthy victim. The mm -hmm. people, serial killers who will say, you know, I yes, I stabbed them, but at least I didn't sexually assault them. Mm -hmm. It feels very, yes, I murdered people, but at least they were all elderly, mm -hmm. you know? In the recording, you can hear her say that after she felt the anger in 2007, there was a voice that said, don't worry, I will use you. And later on, she says, it wasn't a voice in my head, but here. And she motions towards her stomach. And that after she would kill, it was in her gut that she would hear a laughter. She goes on to explain that she was unsure if it was the devil, but also believed that it was God providing her a purpose in life. Her concern for the families is also apparent, outwardly saying that these families believe their loved ones died peacefully and now providing names of the victims that would cause extensive trauma to them. 
August 11, 2007, Mr. James Silcox, a World War II veteran and father of six, was the first one that died at Elizabeth's hands. Nurses would speak of James very negatively. Being in care, he was struggling with dementia, and there was gossip around how he treated female employees, and also how he speaked and treated his wife. On one occasion, he did sexually assault Elizabeth by grabbing her breast. Working a double shift, afternoon and overnight, about 9.30, she gave this non-diabetic patient 50 milligrams of insulin. Likely assuming this was a part of his medication regime, he did not react to the shot. James passed away at 3.30 a.m. Elizabeth tended to the body, sat with the family, and the doctor informed them that the cause of death was an embolism from a recent surgery. With the doctor unassuming, Elizabeth completed the documentation needed for James's death and made sure that the box wasn't clicked off so that there was no suspicion that the death was not natural, taking away any possibility of doubt from those reading the document. The family thanked Elizabeth for her care of her father, and she went home and went to bed, hoping never to see the family again. During this confession, she nonchalantly exclaims that she had done this to other people, but that they did not die. The intention was not for them to die. However, Elizabeth's anger, coupled with that sense of this was a person that God wanted back with him, drove her to overdosing them with insulin. That no matter how she felt about them, that this was her purpose, and that she would do what God had intended her to do. The insulin was kept in the medication room, and unlike other medication, the insulin was not documented nor tracked. Mm. Opportunity means and personal release of pressure after the murders would continue to drive Elizabeth to kill. These were spur-of-the-moment kills where she felt that God wanted the person back with him. Maurice Grant was Elizabeth's second victim. As she states, he was another one that liked to grab breasts and asses. I think at this point you all think, well, this is how she's choosing them. Mm. There's anger mixed with religious upbringing, trying to justify the acts, and if you read the handwritten note, it's really easy to assume that this is bullshit and she doesn't mention it at all. But in her confession tapes, she does explain why she didn't actually tell Dr. Khan about it. And this was the first time that she was expressing it and, and the why and putting the motive to the killings besides the fact that she felt angry. Okay. I should actually mention that if you do watch the confession video, the dates she provides are estimates and are actually not correct. So you can read the full court document, a legal statement of facts, which have the exact dates of deaths for those individuals. And so those are the dates that we'll be using today. So on December 22nd, shortly after dinner, Elizabeth had that feeling again that it was Maurice's time to go. Just like James, she gave him a fatal shot of insulin. Maurice died the next day when Elizabeth was off shift. Mm. Maurice, after a long battle with prostate cancer, had been moved to a palliative bed, meaning they were only focusing on pain management prior to death, and he was already fairly emaciated. Insulin needs to be injected into the body fat to have any effect. Maurice did not have enough body fat for the needle to go into his arm, and so Elizabeth injected the insulin into his leg. This time, Elizabeth explained away the shot as doctor's orders, that Maurice needed a vitamin shot, and without question, Maurice complied. Not being in control of the death documentation this time, Elizabeth was worried that somebody would find the injection site. Next time she was on shift, she did check the documentation, but saw no concerning notes that were pointing at her. Yeah, I mean, he didn't die on her shift, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not gonna... 
you're not going to suspect her. Yeah. It wasn't until 2011 that Elizabeth killed again. However, just as she did prior to James, she did attempt to overdose another two people with insulin after Maurice. When these people did not die, she believed that it was an act of God and that since they survived, God decided it was not their time. Still at caressant care, Elizabeth was caring for a quiet and determined woman, Helen Matheson. The evening that Elizabeth again got that feeling, she spent time with Helen, talking about their love of food. Elizabeth even went on her lunch and purchased a small blueberry pie to give to Helen. Helen was able to enjoy a few bites prior to Elizabeth's insulin injection that night. Again, she stated that she got the laughter post-injection. Helen died two days later. What is striking about this murder is that Elizabeth speaks kindly of Helen. Up until this point, you assume she has a type and that the anger she felt back in 2007 is the true reason why she kills men who are demeaning and abusive to women. But now, she has murdered a quiet and kind woman. She continuously circles back to that feeling she gets that God is calling for this person and that for a release of the anger she is feeling, that her purpose is to reunite chosen people with God. Doing the research for this episode and, and writing it, I really kept going back to the fact that her first couple of victims were men who were abusive or whatever you want to call it, because I think a lot of it has to do with dementia and probably not um, their lifestyle Mm -hmm. um, on how they treated women and the the female employees at caressing care. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder if that was her original plan and then because of how she felt after the deaths of those two men that she continued on and just by um, opportunity, let's say, yeah. is when she was able to go outside of her type. Yeah, I would say I would definitely say I agree with that. I also there's got to be there's also got to be a little bit of she hasn't gotten caught or even uh-huh. asked about no, not even a question. So there's got to be... It's not even a rumor. No, exactly. Well, I mean, this person died two days after she was in. Yeah. The other person died the day after she was in. Yeah, it's not like Lepi where everybody's dying on her shift. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Gladys Millard was a type 2 diabetic with dementia staying at Caressant Care. Her health deteriorated rapidly while staying at the nursing home. At the beginning, she was up, walking around, and even punched a man who was mistreating other women at the facility. Go Gladys. I know. As her health declined, she did not want to eat or take pills regularly. On October 12th, Elizabeth got what she now called the red surging feeling that she was going to be the one. While it would happen only at work and partially spur of the moment, that surging feeling would fester until Elizabeth believed she knew this was the one. Taking Gladys's life into her hands, just like the others, she gave Gladys an overdose of insulin. Elizabeth was not present for her death and did not complete the documentation. Between shifts, she thought of Gladys and if she had survived or died, but also was wondering if that next shift would be the one where she got caught. And as you are likely suspecting, she did not. The fourth victim in 2011 was Mary Zerwinski. A dementia patient, she was described as fun, feisty, and outspoken, and not in a negative way. Mary herself predicted her own death. She told Elizabeth that this was her night to die, November 6th, and asked to be moved to a palliative bed. After the staff spoke to each other about the request, they decided to oblige and move Mary to this palliative bed. 
Elizabeth took this as a sign that she was the next one. Again, Elizabeth gave her an overdose of long-acting and short-acting insulin at the same time, and Mary died the next afternoon. Documentation was completed, and no suspicion was cast upon Elizabeth for any wrongdoing. After Mary's death, Elizabeth believed she had found the most effective combination of insulin to successfully end a life. At this time, Elizabeth was experiencing a lot of guilt. After Mary and Gladys, she stopped killing for a period of three years. That's a big mm -hmm. cooling down time. During this time, Elizabeth was reconnecting with her faith, trying to get closer to God and see if this really was God's plan for her. She did not want to kill anymore, and between reading her Bible and praying, she was still using hydromorph and alcohol, specifically triples, oh, specifically triples of rye and Baileys. <laughs> you would think the Baileys would hurt. Oh my gosh. My, I think my, that's where my stomach just turns, my goodness. <laughs> the alcohol helped with the time between getting the hydromorph, and she didn't use the alcohol and pills in combination. It's our suspicion that the substances are what filled the void that had driven her to kill. If you numb yourself, the anger goes away. Without the anger, we don't believe Elizabeth would have felt that surge that led her to kill so many times before. Still working at Crescent Care, Elizabeth was responsible for 32 patients while on shift. I think it can be accurate of us to say that many people who are in the helping field are unfortunately in it for the wrong reasons. They use their power for means of control towards an already oppressed population that is vulnerable or marginalized in some way. This is sometimes the only control they have in their lives, and so when they do the work, they feel powerful. They feel they can exert that power to make them feel, well, like God. Mm -hmm. And so when someone like Elizabeth goes into this field, and on top of that is wanting to do the best that she can... Her focus is misused and often used to coerce and control to manipulate the environment. The people they serve and support have very little power, and even less when things like dementia or mental health are at play. And as a textbook-type case, Elizabeth's next victim was Helen Young, who died on July 14, 2013. A type 2 diabetic with dementia, she struggled while staying in the nursing home. She would often yell that she would want to die, and she didn't accept support from the doctors and nurses. I feel like that's so, so typical. Yeah, I agree. Dementia is so multifaceted in terms of how somebody experiences dementia. There's forgetfulness, um, which is a big part of dementia, not being able to recognize your family or loved ones for long periods of time, mm -hmm. not having short-term memory, I can't imagine how scary that would be and how overwhelmed people would feel. And for the, those who work with them on a daily basis, it feels like, oh, they're just being difficult. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the thing is, is you're still going to feel like I'm sure they still feel when someone around you is uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you can tell yeah. like, and while they do have some other things at play, they're still going to see the frustration on the caregiver's face. They're it's still going to see those frustrations. They may not remember their fam family members, but 
or their friends, or, or but they're still going to physically be able to see that. And that's nonviolent crisis intervention training 101. 101 the first yeah. thing you need to do is check yourself. Yeah. If you're not regulated, mm-hmm. you're absolutely going to re-escalate or escalate the other person even more. So somebody who has mental health or dementia who's already in that state, mm-hmm. you're not helping the situation, man. Take no. a deep breath. Yeah. Take Walk away for a minute if you need to. Yeah. Like, that's okay. You're just going to make the situation worse, and it's going to stress you out even more. Yeah, absolutely. During Elizabeth's confession, this was the first time that she didn't mention the anger, the surge, or God. If you watch it, the detective does have some leading questions about the urges, but she answers the questions without confirming this. Things like, when you got that surge again, did you know the feeling between right and wrong? And she responded with, yes, I knew the feelings of right and wrong, and I had doubts that it was God at this point. Which leads me to believe that between her last kill and this one, she may have just wanted to be that angel of mercy sort of killer for Helen. Mm-hmm. That the knowledge Elizabeth had as a nurse, knowing now the correct cocktail of insulin, fully getting away with it without literally any suspicion, that she would end Helen's quote-unquote suffering. Right. And I say that in quotations because we weren't there. Mm-hmm. We don't know what Helen's wishes were in any way. So all we can do is make assumptions based on what the staff had noted when supporting Helen in the nursing home. In no way am I trying to explain away Elizabeth's behavior and choice to take Helen's life either. Dementia is such a horrible disease, and at this point of somebody suffering with dementia, even assisted suicide would not be considered given the lack of informed consent. Yeah, so there's no consent here, and I think we can kind of speak about medically medical assistance in dying, the MAID program here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... I completely support the MAID program because it's consent, period. Yes, yeah. The person is actively involved in the decision, the application, the whole whole part of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what's been interesting, and this is not this, but this is our lives, so I'm going to say it anyways because it's our podcast. Yes, it is. (laughs) There is a lot of eligibility pieces for MAID. You have to be 18 or older. You have to have the capacity to make your own medical decisions you have to be diagnosed with a grievous medical condition but recently somebody who was experiencing homelessness was granted fucking maid i saw this and he it was a man right i feel like i saw this on the news that he was getting kicked out of his longtime apartment Mm -hmm. but he said it was just easier to die than become homeless Mm -hmm. there yeah there was mental health i'm Mm -hmm. not sure if there was addiction there might have been um, but yes, it was because of the homeless piece, uh, that a lot of the news articles was focusing on and yeah, he was granted made. I don't know if things went through or what the end result was in terms of his life, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they started using mental health diagnoses, um, as a part of made, which is, I believe very controversial. I, I would a thousand percent agree with you. I don't think... I mean, this is, this gets very, very sticky because it's that, it's a disease, right? Mm -hmm. Like mental health is a disease and I don't want to take any part away from that. No. But it's sad that the resources are not there, that 
this is this is an alternative. Yeah. Right? It's not like, you know, ALS where the end result is going to be death regardless. Yeah. We're just doing it before it's extremely painful. Mm-hmm. It's not like dementia where unfortunately this person's life is going to get very bad regardless. There's not enough time yeah. to intervene. With mental health, I feel like the right and enough intervention people can be can get better it's not the inevitability that they will die due to their disease and that's yes I think it's very controversial and I and I'm not saying for him Mm -hmm. whether it's the right or wrong decision I'm not here to make choices like Mm -hmm. that for other people thank god I'm not one of the people deciding on me because I'd be like there's alternates. Yeah, that for sure. You. But that's the thing is the lack of resources. We want to help. We want to, we, yeah. Yeah, there just needs to be a significant amount of resources. Any, a lot of the mental health programs in Canada, I mean, in all fairness, all around North America, I'm not mm-hmm. just even going to, all around the world, um, is is just not there. It's entirely underfunded. They Everybody not. has so many different opinions about what will what will ultimately be the quote-unquote solution. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Everybody has a different solution, but at the end of the day, if you don't address poverty, Mm -hmm. if you don't address prevention in youth, Mm -hmm. if you don't stop the cycle, Mm -hmm. then what are we doing? Yeah. Band-aids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what's sad. So I definitely can see why mental health needs to be on an application for maids and why it could even be grounds for approval, but it just makes me extremely upset that there's just not the resources before that. Exactly. You can't talk, you can't talk to somebody out of your, your terminal illness, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And mental health can be a terminal illness. I'm Mm -hmm. not by any means saying that it can't, that it's not. Um, but there just should be more resources in place and more options beforehand more options mm-hmm. multiple options right some people yeah. find solace in religion but that isn't going to be everybody so we can't put everything there though some people like therapy that's going to be good for some people but we can't put all the reasons like it's yeah. just there are so many solutions because we're all so different mm-hmm. yeah all right oh that got heavy a year later elizabeth gave a fatal dose of insulin to maureen pickering Like some of the others, she struggled with the staff at Caressant Care, pulling their hair and pinching them at times. It was determined that she needed one-to-one care, and while they tried to get outside staffing for this, with staff shortages, the care landed on the charge nurse, Elizabeth. One night when she began to feel that surge again, Elizabeth told herself she did not want Maureen to die, but if she could give her a dose to put her in a coma, or as she put it, change her brain waves, it would potentially make it easier on her and the staff to care for Maureen. After two injections, Maureen experienced a stroke and she was taken to hospital. While at hospital, Elizabeth was fired from Carousant Care. And no, not because of suspicions or proof of wrongdoing to Maureen, but for a string of medication errors completely unrelated. Which has happened now how many times for her? Yeah, and covered up. Yeah, absolutely. Maureen returned to the nursing home and died two days later. While unemployed, Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario found Elizabeth's resume and offered her a job. 
Elizabeth informed them of the medication errors she had made, and due to the hiring supervisor, she had a belief in second chances. She was hired on the spot. Just a month in, she took her final life. Five decades earlier, Arpad had escaped communist Hungary by bribing a soldier with a pack of cigarettes. Now Arpad Horvath fought the first needle Elizabeth brought to his bedside, but the second needle she managed to get into his thigh. Just like Maureen, Arpad experienced a stroke the next day, was brought to hospital where he passed away. Elizabeth, for the eighth time, experienced that laughter in her gut, a sort of cackling from the pits of hell. So at the time of writing this, the trial of Lucy Letby had just ended. Yes. Another horrible fucking woman. Mm-hmm. Um, people are really drawing comparisons between the two killers. And if you're one of them or you hear people talking or on social saying the same thing, I would ask that you think critically on that one. While Lucy did use insulin to kill some of the babies, this was not always her method of choice. They both targeted, I would argue, the two most vulnerable populations in this world. Mm -hmm. Newborn babies in the neonatal unit and elderly in a care home, mainly with dementia or other terminal illnesses. But the differences are quite striking. Lucy killed for power and control, while Elizabeth believed that it was her purpose to reunite people with God and needed a personal release from anger that would surge inside of her. Elizabeth, although not my favorite human on any sort of list, she does express remorse and shows empathy throughout her time killing, her confession, and her sentencing. Lucy, on the other hand, didn't even show up to her fucking sentencing. Mm -hmm. She would make the court literally wait outside the room while she walked to the witness box because her 10-second arrest apparently gave her PTSD. These are two very, very different women. They unfortunately took many lives, and when looking at the details, it's just hard to draw a true comparison. Speaking of comparisons, have you watched Yellow Jacket? No, she's giving me a look like, (laughs) why do you even ask that question anymore at this point? No, what is this? 14 episodes in, we should start a list. We should start a list. (laughs) So, Yellow Jackets, there is a character played by, um, what the fuck is her name? Wednesday, Wednesday Adams, okay, Christina Ricci, um, and she plays a character called Misty Quigley, and I feel like that's the better comparison between, like, Elizabeth Wetlaufer and somebody else. Misty works as, like, either a PSW or a nurse or something in a nursing home, and she just yells at the patients, and she's, she's not okay at the head. She's not, she's not having a good time. Zero yeah. of ten recommends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's a really good show. Yeah. It's not scary. It's more psychological. Is it out now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two seasons? Three seasons? I'll definitely add it. I don't... I love a good psychological thriller. That's this. It's the horror that I don't like. No, it's not horror. Horror. A horror fan. (laughs) No, it's um, a group of soccer players in high school. They get on a plane to go to a tournament and the plane crashes. And so... They are stuck in what appears to be northern Canada, in my opinion. But then, like, this little culty type thing forms cannibalism thoughts. But it's not horror. Okay. Alrighty. It's no cannibal holocaust. It's no (laughs) cannibal holocaust. Thank goodness. Oh, my goodness. There are six other victims of Elizabeth, a couple already mentioned, all surviving the insulin shots. 
And this is really where you start to question. Was it the red surge? Or was Elizabeth just taking out her anger on these people because her employment gave her the opportunity and method of murder without detection? The first survivor, the very first person that was given extra insulin, was actually not done to kill her, but just to see what would happen. That makes me feel, that makes me think that this red surge might be a little bit... Pretensies? A little bit pretensies, maybe. (laughs) This was done to her on more than one occasion. When you take a step back and listen to her describe each person, the majority of people are described as difficult, aggressive, or wanting to die. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to make you take a step back and go, hmm, is she using God as a scapegoat? Did she feel anger? Yes, of course. No one's saying that she didn't. Did that anger turn into a red surge inside of her gut? Yes, probably. Extreme emotions like anger and stress can have outward physical symptoms to them. Did she get the voice of God telling her that he was choosing these people? This is where the doubt starts to creep in. I can believe that throughout these years, murdering people, that she did not want to do it. That she felt guilt and shame and all of the things. But I think that she saw murdering people as an easier way to cope than using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. Murder likely made the anger go away for longer periods of time than any substance did or could. I'm leaning on an agreement with that one. Mm -hmm. I think the testing part Mm -hmm. is where her story kind of all falls apart. Now, she does struggle with mental health. So she, I, I do believe this might be a case for, I don't know how this ends, but this could be a case for insanity because if mm-hmm. she's struggling with mental health and she may have started as she was testing, but then it turned to these very physical feelings mm-hmm. and obviously the physical, the actual physical lashing out on someone, there's, I don't know, there's arguments for both, but she did start testing, which... That's where she gave me the creeps, Mm -hmm. like hardcore creeps. I just, because we just did our cannibal Holocaust episode, it made me think of the experiments that like the Nazis did Mm. on the Jewish people. And I know, I don't know why, but that's what it made me think of to be like, I wonder what would happen if I just gave this guy a lot, a whole lot of incident and then I'm just going to document it and and keep doing it. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm like, mm. uh, I'm, un, I'm <laughs> I don't unhappy. I don't know why I went there. It's no, fine. no, no. I, but as soon as you said it, I had that, like, visceral gut feeling of, like, oh, my gosh, yeah. You made a, that was choice. Like, a, yeah. and that's where, like, for me, going with the case of insanity, I can see definitely where it weaves its way in. But if you look at the incidences separately, mm-hmm. that's where I go, this is premeditated. You made a plan. You tried out some tests to see what would work. And then all of a sudden, God was like, well, I want him, though. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how yeah. did all of a sudden God start telling Pre- you? Premeditation is the planning. You yeah. don't necessarily have to. If, if, jo- if John's like, I know that I want to stab somebody in the stomach mm-hmm. and I absolutely want to stab somebody in the stomach and he goes and he buys a knife and he goes and he practices on potatoes or whatever you practice on. I don't know. I've never stabbed anybody. But if you go and you practice and you make the action. <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> 
Maybe not a potato, but something like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you go and you practice, and then you wake up one hot mm-hmm. summer July day and go, today's the day. Mm-hmm. You premeditated that whole thing. Yeah. Even if it's just some random... Yeah, I think this is, like you said, this is where it falls apart. Mm-hmm. I could almost sit here and go, okay, maybe she did think God was speaking to her. Look at everything she's went through in terms of religion mm-hmm. and conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, there's a lot of religious trauma from... here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I could have explained it away like that and kind of been okay to say okay yeah this is what she truly believed I don't believe it Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's right in any way but she thought it was right because of her beliefs but then when that came out and then my brain started reeling because that's what it does I went no she knew she was planning Mm -hmm. she was prepping when God spoke to her she would be ready Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah 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 On one hand, people may feel thankful that she came forward, that the families now know the truth and justice could be served. But no one knew. No one suspected a fucking thing. Which is crazy to me. She didn't come forward for the families to have closure on this chapter of mystery in their lives. She came forward and ripped open deep wounds of grief that their aunt, their grandfather, their husband, their girlfriend, they were all murdered. She did this for herself because of her faith and likely a lack of connection with her religion and God because she thought she was doing a favor to some of these victims. Her confessing these crimes, she's repenting, asking God for forgiveness because thou shall not kill. She knew it wasn't God asking her to kill people. Like, stop. Yeah, no, that's where, yeah, absolutely. She sits in this 10 by 10 concrete room with a detective joking and asking where her cheeseburger is when somebody accidentally opens the door. It's literally infuriating to watch the confession in its entirety. Close to the end of the interview, she states, quote, I've done the right thing and I know it wasn't God, but I also know it was meant to help. Wow. She shows signs of remorse, yes, but she's doing this all for herself, and she knows that the choices that she made were hers. Mm -hmm. She even goes on and offers to be studied, medically studied, so that something good can come of all of this. Yeah, no, her whole thing falls apart here. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's what kind of, that's a very frustrating thing for myself with religion of, mm-hmm. yeah, you can, you can be this terrible person, but if you repent at the end of it all, then mm-hmm. you get to go to heaven. And it's been a, it's been a tough thing that I've had to grapple with just about religion myself. So I yeah. can only imagine someone who is struggling with severe mental health because she does have yeah. severe mental health um, and what she's what she's doing but no she didn't do any of this for she didn't do any of this for any of the victims or the families because like you said yeah she's she's if she truly is as religious as she believes as we're we're given the information we have of her to believe i think if she was truly sorry she would have taken it to her grave and gone to hell to be punished as this is what her belief is Absolutely. So instead, she's bringing pain on earth to the all of the families, mm-hmm. to all of and in all fairness, the there's going to be all of her coworkers who mm-hmm. are like, I didn't see this. Yeah. I there's going to be the doctors like this. Open it opens up so much trauma, mm-hmm. so much chaos, so mm-hmm. much 
more. Um, and then I'm sure that this all had to then be investigated. Like, I know it doesn't say anything about them being, um, them being, uh, re-autopsied or anything like that, but there had to be some sort of investigation that mm -hmm. came afterwards, you know? Yeah. An 810 peace bond was placed on her directly after the taped confession with the OPP. Elizabeth turned herself into police for her arrest on October 24th, 2016. Her confession tape was just one piece of evidence that was shown in court to determine her sentencing. Victim impact statements were read and the horrific detailing of victims and survivors who were once none the wiser, their experience of being targeted by the nurse left to care for their vulnerable loved ones or of themselves. Betrayal, guilt, and anger were the common threads amongst the stories and a resounding question of why. Elizabeth pled guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault. On the eight counts of murder, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole, all 25 sentences to run concurrently. She also received 10 years for each count of attempted murder and seven years for both aggravated assault charges. Elizabeth told the families that day that she was truly sorry. Like I said, I mean, I believe in forgiveness. I think that this can all, I just, they didn't even know that they needed to forgive somebody. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's like, it doesn't matter if you're sorry. They had to, they completely ripped off a wound that they didn't even know that they had. And for, I just really just want mercy for the families. Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure some take comfort that they know what actually happened, but I just really want mercy for their family of, it would have just been so much easier for yeah. them to not experience this. And I think that, this is such a fear when you put your loved one in. It's a, it's a fear for anyone residing within a nursing home. Yeah. And anybody who puts their loved ones in a nursing mm -hmm. home that this could happen. And that no one would be known the wiser. Like, there's kind of that catch. Like, somebody did, quote unquote, get justice for mistreating people. But it adds to that fear and adds to the, like... This could happen. And how many yeah. times has this happened? Well, and the, how many... The, the I think it was a year ago. No, it would, it was right near the tail end of COVID that it came out that at a, at a home, I don't believe it was an elderly woman, but she was impregnated by a staff member because he kept repeatedly raping her and she was unable to speak and, and tell people about it. That is... This is yeah. happening all the time. Mm -hmm. The only reason that he got caught was because the woman got pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. That's disgusting. That is absolutely disgusting. And it, and it, yeah. And it's such a Western way of thinking of that, like, when we age, we become useless to society. Um, there's other cultures, the Japanese culture, where, you know, you live with your elderly mm -hmm. family members and you nurture them and you see them as wise and you really rely on them to learn life lessons yeah and in canada we just toss them away yeah which it's is sad. so heartbreaking in canada and most like you said the western world which is yeah we're it's, devalued as we age yeah. period like there's there's no ifs ands or buts about it yeah i didn't think i was gonna get this angry no i, I, I know i wrote this like eight million years yeah ago. and we read it we pre-recorded yes, it we yeah. recorded it yeah. I'm still fucking angry. Yeah. She no, makes me sure. so fucking angry. Yeah, absolutely she does. And it also like speaks like my mom 
now, who is nowhere near the age of nursing home, has been saying, just don't ever put me in a nursing home. Oh, just yeah. Just don't ever put me in a nursing home. My dad always says... Whatever you says, do, don't ever put me yeah. in a nursing home. But I'm like... If I ever need to girl, put on a should, diaper, do, just kill me. Yeah, like, dude, dude, chill. Like, you're 30, like, you're 30 <laughs> years old. Like, maybe we... My mom is not 30 years old, but she's been saying it forever. Her fear of going to a nursing home. Yeah. And she is nowhere near nursing home age. Yeah. And, like, that just shows the the sadness that is our culture. Yeah. And when my grandmother was sick, um, we ended up putting her in a nursing home. And, I mean, my parents did all of the research, and they have doctor friends who helped us kind of find the right one for mm-hmm. her. And she didn't want to be there, but her caregiver couldn't take care of her in the way that was needed for that time period. Mm-hmm. And my parents were not in a position to take her into their home either. Um, but they have the privilege to be able to go visit her every day yeah. and spend time with her. And and other people did come down. But not everybody has that type of family mm-hmm. who has the time, mm-hmm. but also the care the, to the care, go see them. The means. The, yeah. Yeah, there's so many factors. I mean, mm-hmm. we know of some just in our region that we're like, oh, gosh, can pray for any person who has yeah. to stay in that. Like, we know yes. exactly where we won't yeah. say them, but we know exactly oh which ones that we know. The and one here, there's one right here that I was like, if I'm, like, rich and old, I'm 100% going to live there. There's a scabies outbreak there right now. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's gosh. like, oh, I didn't really think about things like that yeah. happening. Yeah. But, yeah, like, with the pandemic and the COVID outbreaks and not being able to go and yeah. visit and... They weren't allowed to leave the facility either to try and keep COVID contained. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, there's scabies at breaks. So oh, things yeah. to look forward to yeah, in our old as age. We, as we as we age somewhat gracefully. <laughs> Not gracefully. <laughs> Both of us have broken backs. Broken Bad backs. Knees. <laughs> terrible stomachs. <laughs> terrible knees. I was just showing one of my friends the other day, like when I when I lean my knee here, let me actually see if we can catch this. This is my knees. <laughs> she squatted a hole of like two inches. <laughs> oh my god, what's happening? Squat. I don't know. I have to get on the ice tomorrow. I have to put ice skates on. Oh, I'm like, wow. I'm going to die. I lifted yeah. turkeys for work on Friday and I'm still hurting. Yeah. WSIB. We're not aging. We're aging like milk a little bit. We'll be fine. Some chunky. <laughs> She's thick, bro. I like them big. I like them big. I like them chunky. I like them chunky. How do you move on from that? I don't know. Elizabeth was imprisoned at the Vanier Center for Women in Milton, Ontario. She will be up for parole in 2041. When she will be 73 years old. I hope you have dementia. 2041 is the same year that Andrew Barry will be out. How is this continuing to connect? Why is this this happening? Why are they all leaving? Why are they all getting out? 2041 is no time. It's 2024. Mm -hmm. That'll be here before we know it. How old will we be? Can you... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I will be 52. We're not going to be retired and she's going to be out. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be 52. You'll be 54. You'll be almost retired. Oh my God. <laughs>
No, I'm going to be a famous elderly podcaster. Yeah, They're going to wheel us out. They're going to wheel us out. Like, did you hear my knees? I'm definitely getting wheeled out. These murders did prompt an in-depth look into systemic conditions in Ontario's long-term care homes. A final report was released in 2019 with 91 recommendations for change. I hope one being that the recording and documentation of insulin usage is now a thing. Yeah, seriously. Whenever I hear... I hope that, and then I also I also hope that, yes, there's time for change, but if there's a termination on your record, it stays yeah. there. Even if it's not necessarily the reason, mm-hmm. it should stay there. So mm-hmm. then the, or the, the, the company, the organization, has a chance to be like... Well, and that's why there's a college. Yeah. I'm not uh, registered to the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers mm-hmm. um, because my job doesn't require it to yeah, be. But I definitely understand the purpose of it. Yeah. Um, it's like teachers' unions, things like that, child care, ECEs. If you do something bad, you're put on the list mm-hmm. and everybody can look you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it also protects you as well. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's a reason that it exists. Like, you're protected. The com- mm-hmm. the, the people are protected. Mm-hmm. It is a good thing when used properly. Yeah. I just wish it didn't cost so much. That's yeah. why I'm not on it. Because yeah. I can't afford it. Yeah. No, fair. Give me a raise. <laughs> Whenever I hear of these inquiries and reports, it's almost like you have... Whenever I hear of these inquiries... Inqu- Whenever... Whenever... Whenever I hear of these inquiries and reports, you almost get this feeling of, like, you could have fucking prevented this. Your policies and oversight are that weak, and of course this is going to happen. You need a serial killer to get caught and and confess. Yeah, point them out like, to you. She wasn't even, she, she confessed. Well, it's your fault. I don't have to report what insulin I use. Guys. Guys. <laughs> you practically put it in my hands. Oh, my goodness. It's a shame. Yeah. There's literally no other way to put it. In 2018, Elizabeth was moved from prison to the Institut Philippe Pinel de Montréal. Something Canada apparently loves to do is move serial killers without informing the families of the victims. Sweet. There's even a law in the Victims' Bill of Rights that when moving a prisoner, the victims are to be notified. But they found out. On Global News. Oh, my gosh. The first victim, James Silcox, his family spoke out about this mistreatment and said, quote, I think they had more sympathy for Whitlawfer than they did for the group of families, and I do not agree with that whatsoever. Beyond the impact directly to this group affected, the movement of prisoners resonates with other victims of crime. Tori Stafford was seen... I got goosebumps. Look at this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tori Stafford was seen walking through Carescent Care's nursing home parking lot. This was the video widely circulated when asking the public for information on the little girl's disappearance. This connection and the news of Elizabeth transfer re-traumatizes those who have gone through similar situations. A year later, Elizabeth returned to a maximum security prison, Grand Valley Institute in Kitchener, Ontario. So there you got it. There we have it. I'm going to hug every single old person in my life, including your knees. (laughs) (laughs) It's so bad. Why does it do that? I don't know. Because I'm sexy and crunchy. (laughs) (laughs) I like him crunchy. (laughs) Does it hurt? No. 
Have you seen a doctor? No. <laughs> I have enough going on in my life. <laughs> oh, so there's that. Hug all the old people in your life. Check your knees. Listen, if you squat and hear your knees crunch, I can't even. I can't comment even below. That. <laughs> comment below. <laughs> so we can start a support group, the Crunchy Knees Support Group. C K S G. C K S G. Crunchy okay, knees support true. group. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like our knees. <laughs> Bye.